Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. So a few days ago, a new story was that Paul Bernardo is scheduled for a parole hearing on June 22nd. He's 56 years of age. He became eligible for parole more than three years ago. And in 2018, he was denied uh, a release. And he said he's cried over what he's done. And that he's a better human being. One of his quotes from the Canadian press, what I did was so dreadful, I hurt a lot of people. I cry all the time. Well, if you had your date with the hangman, that wouldn't be happening. And I've gotten into trouble before for saying that. In fact, in a National Post column I wrote, uh, I said the final adjudication of Olson, this was Clifford Olson, who is just as bad as Bernardo. He's a mass murderer of Canadian children in British Columbia. I wrote a final adjudication of Olson's status were in mind to determine he would long ago have felt a noose placed around his neck and a trapdoor giving way. I have no interest in Olson's well-being, and I'm truly sorry regulations blocked correctional authorities from providing Olson his long-standing wish to be placed into the general population of a Canadian penitentiary. I heard a program from uh, Joyceville Prison a number of years ago with the Inmates Committee, and I asked them at the time what would happen to Clifford Olson if he were placed into the general population of that prison. You can imagine what the answer was. My good friend Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney in Alberta, um, Senior Policy Advisor to a Federal Minister for Public Safety, past Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association, has worked tirelessly and for decades for victims of crime. He was a very close friend of um, Gary and Sharon Rosenfeld, whose son was murdered by, by Olson. And I have only the utmost respect for what Scott has done over the years. And everything that I know about the criminal justice system, I've learned from Scott Newark. So I've talked to you so many times. You know, we've met as friends personally. You've been on this program many, many times. It's always an honor for me to speak with you because I know how deeply you care when you hear that Bernardo is receiving a parole hearing, when you think about what you experienced um, in your role with the Canadian Police Association and as friend of Gary and Sharon uh, Rosenfeld's, when, when you think about all the things that you've done, Scott, to address criminal justice issues in this country, when you hear that Bernardo's getting a parole hearing, think about the French and the Mahaffis. What's going through your mind? What's going through your heart? Well, it's um, it actually, I think, uh, starts with what you alluded to, which is uh, that you and I have been involved in, um, you know, raising issues, exposing issues, uh, actually even in changing laws about our uh, corrections and parole system uh, for, you know, gee, about 30 years. And some of it is directly applicable to this. Uh, and, you know, when you mentioned the previous column that you wrote, one of the things that um, I've noted as well, too, is that uh, you are one of the people who has best cited, um, if you will, the culture of our correctional system going back into the 1970s when there was, I believe it was a Trudeau 1.0 at that point was the uh, government. And uh, you actually mentioned that there was a definitive decision made by the federal government at the time that we were going to move away from what was a uh, penal or punishment-based system into a rehabilitative system where the 
reintegration of persons uh, into society would be the priority of the system. And that was back in the uh, the 1970s. And that's, you know, the reality that uh, that we face. And it's when you see cases like Bernardo and actually Clifford Olson, I attended three of his parole hearings actually at the request to help uh, the victims' families. Uh, we can talk about that in a second. But uh, it's those kinds of cases that you look at it and just sort of go, you know, um, this just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel as though... Um, you know, the interests of society, not only just the victims, but the interests of society are really being appropriately uh, addressed here. But there has been a series of changes to the way our process works. Look, I got to tell you, you'll remember this. Uh, when I first got involved in this in helping crime victims, and even in my early days in the uh, Canadian Police Association in the early 1990s, uh, no one was even allowed to attend a parole hearing. Victims weren't allowed to attend. They weren't allowed to speak. Journalists weren't allowed to attend. So we have made progress in the sense of, you know, development of it. But I think this case and some of the uh, uh, insights that have been raised in the media about this, which we can discuss, I think uh, raises why there's a need for uh, additional changes and things specific to this case that need to be addressed. And I'm very glad to see that uh, my old friend, who I haven't seen in a long time, but... Uh, um, I got involved with Tim Danson is still uh, acting as counsel for the yeah. uh, the families yeah. because Tim has been another absolutely relentless champion of fairness and justice, uh, including for crime victims in our justice system. So he's asked some absolutely relevant questions, and if uh, anybody is going to be able to help, uh, you know, uh, get it uh, done, I, I'm sure it will be uh, these families and uh, and their lawyer, Tim Danson. Yeah, and uh, we'll have Tim on this program as well. I've known Tim for many, many years. He, like you, has made a total commitment to crime yeah. victims in Canada. It was 1971 that uh, the then Solicitor General, Jean-Pierre Goyer, in Pierre Trudeau's, Pierre Trudeau's cabinet, said these words, we have decided from now on to stress the rehabilitation of individuals rather than the protection of society. Not rehabilitation of the individual and the protection of society, but rehabilitation rather than the protection of society. So here you're going to have Bernardo, who we know has his rights. You, you remember that uh, that call that I got from a guard at Kingston Prison saying yeah. that that, that Bernardo was having conjugal visits. Yes, I, I got a similar call. It was known as he was allowed to have female visitors, that he was in the what they called the boom-boom room. That's right. So we called Correctional Service Canada. I think you were on the show with me that day. Yeah. And the Correctional Service Canada person, <laughs> spokesperson, came on, and I asked whether uh, Bernardo was having conjugal visits and whether that was allowed for Bernardo, and I got this back. Mr. Bernardo has his privacy rights, and he's treated as is any other offender in the Canadian uh, prison system. So, if he has a fiancé or is married, who would know, uh, yeah, he gets his time, his conjugal visits. We also heard another famous statement from Correctional Service Canada. Why don't you tell us what that one was? It's all the prompting you need. I'm sorry, I... I didn't hear the, 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 the other thing. The other thing the Correctional Service Canada told us about what oh. we all are. Yes, they they referred. I believe they, the phrase they used was that they uh, referred to uh, Canadians as uh, non-convicted individuals living in society. That's right. That's right. I mean, so that's, that's, that's how they said. But that's the, into the perspective. And yeah. you know, to, to go to your point about rehabilitation, um, I actually 
think that that makes sense, that the best way to ensure public safety is to ensure people that are committing crimes are, you know, change their behavior so that they're not committing crimes. The problem that we've experienced over the years is I think that in um, uh, the correctional culture in Canada, uh, they use a one-size-fits-all approach. Okay, and whereas what you need to have happen, and the Bernardo case absolutely uh, demonstrates this, you need to look at the circumstances of the individual, the circumstances of the offenses that they committed in making your decisions. And unfortunately, I think in our system, it was actually known, and again, it was somebody from within uh, CSC that alerted me to this on a, a case out of Manitoba, where the culture was that the number one instruction was GTO which was get them out. And success beat was being measured on, you know, the numbers of people that were being released. Mm-hmm. Look, I don't think that should be the case. You That's know, not what the metric of success should be. It should be on reduced crime. Scott, I, I, I interviewed, and I'm going to be careful what I say here because I don't want the person to be identified, because he'd get into trouble with his superiors. Yes. But this individual within the Correctional Service Canada system has a role. He's an assistant warden in a, in, a, in a facility somewhere in Canada. And he said to me, tomorrow is release date. And I yeah. have to release people who've done two-thirds of their sentence and have been judged releasable, so I have to let them go. He said, I know I'm going to see them again and for worse crimes. Oh, and, and I, but, but on the other side of the, the ledger, I have individuals in this institution I could let go tomorrow, and I know I'd never see them again. Yeah. It's not see, he and, who and makes the You know, the what's decision. also relevant about that is that uh, presumptive early release at two-thirds, uh, that's if somebody gets a fixed sentence. That's, <laughs> and they go, oh, yeah, we have to release them. And I, even cabinet ministers have said that. That is not true. The law creates a process by which... The Correctional Service of Canada and the Parole Board can say, you know what, you're too dangerous to release. But they don't want to do that because of the metric of success being get them out. Okay. And the Bernardo case that's coming up, I think, is another illustration of this because um, this guy, while he's entitled to the hearing, one of the things the families have said was, look, he had his last hearing two and a half years ago. Why does he have to have his hearing you know, every two years why can't you extend it to five years? Scott, go ahead and then please tell us, remind us of what, what Olson, the child yeah. killer, was granted when you appeared at his parole hearings. The, um, I was talking about uh, some of the, uh, the changes, and even in the, uh, the media reporting about this, uh, the family has said, like, you know, why make us go through this every two years? Okay, and so I was looking things up, and it, I went, it reminded me of some changes that we made because of the Olson case. In fact, Section 123, subsection 5.01 of the Corrections and Conditional Release Act specifically authorizes the parole board, if they deny somebody parole and it was on a violent offense, guess what? They can extend the time for the person to be able to apply for parole for five years. So in other words, exactly what the family is asking for has been authorized in the statute. And I am quite sure that uh, Tim Danson will be asking for that specifically. Another change that we got uh, made that is very important, uh, and again, it is something uh, that is uh, part of a request. I understand that uh, Tim has uh, brought in a court application on it, um, is he wants to know, he wants to get information about how relevant information about how Bernardo has behaved while he's been in prison. So, in other words, 
the victims now have a right to go and to make you know, their comments and suggestions and observations. They deserve to know the truth. That's the way our justice system is supposed to work. And in Section 101, subsection B of the same Correction Conditional Release Act, it says that parole boards enhance, as the principles guiding parole boards, parole boards enhance their effectiveness and openness through the timely exchange of relevant information with victims, offenders, and other components of the criminal justice system. Hello? You know, what that really means, and I'm sure this is what the argument's going to be in court, is if there's information, for example, like there was in the last hearing, about psychiatric observations of them, because this guy is a psychopath, just like Clifford Olson was as well, too, yeah. and he had behavioral issues. When he's boo-hooing, the, the, the quote that you read, and he's boo-hooing about the, oh, I cry every day, that is such an obvious red flag that this guy is just trying to control things, and it's all about me, and oh, I'm so right. you know, sad, and you should feel sorry for me, and everything else. Scott, I've, um, I, have to, I have to ask you to get to the uh, Olson story, how he okay, got from well, prison to the hearing in Vancouver that you attended. Yeah, the, uh, the Olson case and the Bernardo case, uh, actually, again, they were allowed to go through these uh, proceedings because our law, it was the one-size-fit-all, and as I said, you know, I supported the, and still do, the, the concept of rehabilitation. Although I must admit, in both the Bernardo and Olson cases, I favor the, what I believe I've described to you before as the BITH, B-I-T-H, rehabilitation program. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with that? Yes, I am. B-I-T-H, bullet in the head. Okay, okay, so I have a minute. I have a minute. So tell us what happened. Rem well, Not everybody knows the story. Is, is that the... Because these guys are psychopaths, and in reality, they know they're not going, they're not going to get out, they're not going to go anywhere. But you know what? It's all about control for them. So they like to have these hearings and torment the victims because they know that by what they do, they can cause them incredible pain and suffering. Right. Now, Olson, Olson was flown by Olson private hearing, jet. And you better believe Bernardo's the same thing. Olson was flown by private jet from his prison in Saskatchewan. There's a guy who was too dangerous to be allowed out of his prison cell, but he was flown by private jet from Saskatchewan to Vancouver to attend his Section 745 early parole the possibility early release, yeah. hearing, right? So they paid for that, but your friends and my friends, uh, Gary and uh, Sharon Rosenfeld, they were told by the federal government, they lived in Ottawa, you make your own way to Vancouver. Yeah, we actually, when I was at the police association, we actually paid for the expenses. Did. I know you did. But you're absolutely correct. The, the first hearing, the pre-hearing he had, he was too dangerous. Correctional Service of Canada said he was too dangerous to even be on the plane, so it was all done remotely. Right. Like, what the heck? And by the way, those are good examples that you just mentioned about changes that we've made. We got rid of that, you know, uh, baloney early release after only 15 years instead of 25 years, okay. we got rid of that. And we also now have allowed for consecutive parole ineligibility uh, uh, as part of a sentence. Right. So multiple murderers can get multiple periods, which means the victims don't have to go through Scott, it there's, the way they Scott, there's more that. work. There's, I, I understand the passion. I know it in you. There's more work to be done because Bernardo should not be receiving these parole hearings. It's just absolutely reprehensible that uh, that he's allowed to have Although this. Although for now, given the statute, use the tools that are available to reduce okay. the trauma the victims have to go through. 
Jason Kenney, of course, the Premier of Alberta. I read him. <clears throat> pardon me. I'm just having a little bit of time with allergies here. Uh, Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta. There's an op-ed uh, by Mr. Kenney in the National Post. Cancel John A. Macdonald, and we might as well cancel all of Canadian history. I'm just going to read one line from that op-ed. Mr. Kenney says, I think it's much better that we learn from our history, including those periods of great injustice, without seeking to cancel our history. I think we need to know more about it. The Premier joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Premier Kenney, um, make your case, please, and thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Roy. I, first of all, just a little clarification. That wasn't actually an op-ed, but they wrote a transcript of an answer I gave to a question at a news conference earlier this week, or last week. And uh, I was asked if I thought that schools named after John McDonald, for example, should have their names changed or if I supported statues. And I said that, uh, well, let's get one thing. Let's get first things first, Roy. In the context of what we're discussing in, as a nation right now, our collective shock and horror at the discovery of uh, the unmarked remains of 215 children at the Kamloops Residential School, our first thought must go to uh, th- those children, their families, and, and more broadly, uh, the hundreds of thousands of Indigenous families who were torn apart uh, in the terrible wickedness of the uh, Indian residential school system in Canada, for which there there can be no moral justification. Uh, it was the state using its power to rip children out of, away from their parents, and then, uh, sometimes quite literally, to beat their language and culture out of them, uh, with a, a death rate for children. It's true that most of those, uh, those passed away from diseases that were common in those days, like tuberculosis and influenza, but it's also true that the death rate was significantly higher for children in residential schools than in other settings, in part because of the, the often deplorable living conditions. So we have to start with all of us, everyone in Canada, with a sense of, of horror and humility in facing those historical facts and the fact that the Canadian state in so many different ways, was deeply involved in it. Um, and uh, we need to know that history. And Prime Minister Harper was right uh, to make the official apology. Government of Canada was right to provide billions of dollars in financial redresses as a part of reconciliation. Canada was right to appoint the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And there's so much work that needs to be done in that way. So what, what uh, has to happen? Tried- Premier, what has to happen then? What's the case you're making? Well, the case I'm making is that uh, all of those things are true and all of those things need to happen. And we need to recognize the involvement of Canadian, senior Canadian political leadership, including uh, the founding prime minister, John MacDonald, in establishing the, the system of Indian residential schools. But uh, r- r- the broader point I made was that we shouldn't be focusing uh, historical um, re- or kind of retrospective historical judgment on only one or two figures in our history, because quite frankly, the entire early leadership of Canada is implicated in the unjust treatment of Indigenous people, and frankly, unjust treatment of other people. And uh, we so we need to teach those facts, but I, I don't think it's helpful to uh, sort of drive out of our history um, so many of those who who built the country. Uh, we need to recognize the good and the bad. Uh, we need to recognize when it comes to John McDonald, his his complexity, uh, the terrible mistake, and bad intentions around the Indian residential schools. But also that if he if it had not been for his leadership, there would be no Canada. That's the conclusion of his modern biographer Richard Gwynne, No McDonald, No Canada. But here's my broader point: 
if we apply that standard to John McDonald, and, and people can certainly make a, a persuasive case to do it, then it has to be applied to all of the early prime ministers, to Wilfrid Laurier, who expanded the residential school system, who barred blacks from coming into Canada, who increased tenfold the Chinese head tax, who brought in the continuous journey policy that led to the tragedy of the Komagato Maru trying to block South Asians from migrating to Canada. We have to apply it to, I would argue, to William Lyon Mackenzie King, our longest-serving prime minister, who oversaw our fight in the Second World War, but who also barred the admission of Jew- Jewish refugees to Canada in the Second War, who continued the Indian residential school system, who oversaw the internment of Italian Canadians in the Second World War. And if we go down this direction, the famous five, the great heroes of Canadian feminism, um, who were three of at least three of whom were outspoken advocates of racist eugenics, and, and Emily Murphy, the, the foremost amongst them, who wanted to deport uh, non-white people from Canada. So the broader point I'm making is, yes, we must absolutely be uh, collectively focused on the work of reconciliation, the truth about the Indigenous residential schools, but we also need to be careful when addressing our broader history, lest we lose it all in a sense, and we need to look at it in context. Now, the way I do that, I look at these historical figures um, what was their broader, what were their broader achievements and accomplishments? And secondly, how did they how did they stand in the mores of their time? And John McDonald, who proposed giving the vote to Indigenous Canadians and to women in the 1880s, was in many ways ahead of his time. Doesn't absolve him retrospectively of his responsibility in this in the in tragedy and the injustice of residential schools. But he was actually standing up to many in Parliament at the time, and, 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 and Liberal Indigenous Relations Minister Mark Miller admitted this, and I thought a very thoughtful comment this past week, where he took essentially the same view I am, where he said that he acknowledged that John McDonald's Liberal opposition at the time were, thought that he was being too, uh, too kind to First Nations people. So we need to understand uh, the historical context. So do we not, do we not in this country require a better understanding of this nation's history, period? Because we have not been teaching history, Canadian history, properly in our provincial systems for many years. I think there were four provinces, five provinces maybe 20 years ago, that had an actual history curriculum. One province had it under social studies, I believe. But we just don't yeah. do a good job of, of teaching Canadian more. history. So we do, So everything is, it's not history, it's new to most people. And that's, um, I think you're probably referring to the great Canadian historian Jack Granitstein's book 20 years ago, Who Killed Canadian History? Yeah, uh, where he uh, decried the fact that you could graduate from uh, high school in twelve, uh, sorry, in seven, so, the 12, ten Canadian. So, so Premier, I'm sorry. Uh, so, what happens then? What happens then with the statues? What happens to the uh, to the naming of uh, Ryerson University, which is another flashpoint of opinion? What ha- what what has to happen? What, what's your suggestion? Well, I I think that we need to address all these issues with um, first of all, with respect for our First Nations people um, and with empathy. Uh, we we also need, as you say, to to, to, to learn our history, the good and the bad. Um, we're trying to do that by bringing much more content in, 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 on Canadian history into our revised uh, school curriculum. I did that as Minister of Immigration for a new citizenship test for new Canadians, including, right, I'm not, I'm not arguing for a jingoistic um, kind of rose-colored view of Canadian history. I included in the citizenship guide for uh, re- references to the residential school system, its injustice, to the unjust immigration restrictions, the internments, and, and other uh, 
uh, injustices in our past. We have to face up to those. But here's my here's my qualifier. We should not, at the same time, um, depict all of Canada's roots as a country as being um, irredeemably uh, in, uh, unjust. There's much greatness. There are many remarkable stories and sacrifices and great people, many complicated people. The famous five who led the fight for full equality for women. They deserve to be recognized for that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think, you know, where there's a famous five statue, there should probably be some contextual plaque about their views on eugenics or race. Right. Uh, and I would agree with the same with a John McDonald statue or, or an Egerton Ryerson statue. You know, so, so I, think, I think we can acknowledge these important figures in our past and their achievements, but also, uh, in some cases, they're really grave imperfections. Premier, I have about a minute left. I want to move to something else here. It's, it's, it's really a sideways step. Uh, Global News today, the headline is, Trudeau must fulfill vow of transformative change for Indigenous people, Wilson-Raybould. So Jody Wilson-Raybould, who's the First Nations chief, who was the Attorney General for this country, I'm telling you things you know, of course, uh, who was removed from that position by Mr. Trudeau. Jody Wilson-Raybould is saying Mr. Trudeau must fulfill the vow of transformative change for Indigenous people. How do you interpret... Go ahead, please. Yeah, well, uh, obviously... uh, um, I mean, she was removed as Minister of Justice for, by the Prime Minister, and there, I think there are a number of reasons for it, and, and, and I think she's felt that, that his government has not moved forward adequately on these issues. I, I, all I can say is, um, I mean, Jody Wilson-Raybo is a very impressive woman, and um, I, I think we should t- take her views on these questions seriously. Uh, and the work is ongoing. Look, we should acknowledge Canada is, is I think, making progress on, on many of these fronts. Here in Alberta, our number one focus with our First Nations communities is economic opportunity because at the end of the day, poverty, the cycle of poverty is a tragic, uh, you know, we, we, we need to help empower our First Nations communities to lift themselves out of that cycle by through economic opportunity. And we were doing that through the Indigenous Opportunities Corporation in Alberta that backstops Indigenous co-ownership and major resource and economic projects so they can get, uh, uh, massively improve the quality right. of living, education, and, and, and future prospects of their youth. Premier, thank you for coming on the program, and thank you for never dodging it. If it's a subject that's a challenging one, you've never you've never dodged it And when I've asked you to come on. Thanks. It, it is. I, mean, I appreciate this is an impossible issue to address in a soundbite. This, this does require us to say patience and nuance and, and, uh, and empathy. So, so thank you very much, Roy. Uh, Ted Barris is the author of Juno, Canadians at D-Day, June 6, 1944. Mr. Barris is, I'm going to call him a war historian. He's much more than that, but he's an extremely um, focused person on Canada's military history. He's the recipient of the RCAF NORAD trophy for his research and writing of the Dam Busters. Uh, Ted, thanks for coming on the program. Your book is Juno. Um, would you speak to us, please? And you heard Dead Mahoney, my, my, my friend who's passed away of um, passed away a number of years ago. Speak about Canada's involvement in, in the D-Day invasion. What do we need to know? Well, Roy, thanks for having me on the show, first of all. Um, I think we need to know that Canada was an equal partner in the attack that day in every respect, from planning and uh, ultimate operation, um, and in fact uh, superseded expectation because the Canadians got farther inland than anyone else of the Americans and the British involved. But I think more important than that is, is Ed's point, um, is, is that they went in with their hearts. 
I, I talked to I've, for the preparation of that book, and I've interviewed probably seven or eight thousand veterans over the years for all nineteen of my books. And one of the stories from D-Day that stands out was that, that uh, unlike um, the American forces, it was illustrated by Saving Private Ryan, where they tried to keep brothers apart so that there wasn't a great loss to a family of more than one, perhaps. In the Canadian Armed Forces, claiming was encouraged. In other words, you could go in with your brother or your father, and that was the case on D-Day morning, because uh, Fred Bernard went in with Don Bernard in the Queen's Own Rifles just before 8 o'clock in front of Bernier-sur-Mer that morning, and they saw each other in the same landing craft, one shouting to the other, give him hell, and they jumped out into the fusillade of shells ricocheting off the water and whatever else the Germans were throwing at them, and before Fred got to the beach, he saw his brother lying dead in the water. He hadn't even made it that far. So these men gave everything in expectation that that was their duty, that was their service, and and ultimately Fred's loss of his brother that very day. The uh, the, the the success of the Canadian Armed Forces on Juno Beach was remarkable. Uh, as you say, they pushed in France further than any of the other Allied units. Just as Canadians took Vimy Ridge in World War One, after the French and the English weren't able to. Uh, do that for a long period of time. What were the days like after D-Day? The next week to what? 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 Uh, what, what developed then? Ted? Well, um, in fact, uh, your point's well taken about the you know going inland uh, farther than anyone else. They actually had to withdraw the Canadians on the night of the sixth to prepare for sort of evening up the line to continue. And then, of course, it was within 24 hours that the um, uh, Canadian uh, tank regiment, the Sherwood Sher- Sher- Fusiliers, and the North Nova Scotians. Uh, ran into Kurt Meyer's uh, Hitler Youth, and they were overrun by the, the, the in extending the the front farther inland on the on the morning of the seventh. They ran right into a trap, which Meyer and his Hitler Youth had had laid for them, and they were all caught off guard. And they captured dozens and dozens of these Canadians, and they were murdered. So there were tremendous setbacks, both in spirit and loss and and fear. Um, uh, in those first few days. But the Canadians persisted, like the British and the Americans, but we didn't shout about it. The Americans and the British tend to take their warrior nature much more seriously, and they get it out there. We're modest. We recognize the losses as much as the victories. Who were these young men? Who were they? They were guys who were not regular soldiers. They were volunteers. They came from the ranks of, of business. They came from farm fields. They came from fishing towns. They were some of them were students, and they signed up because they recognized this was a necessary thing to do. And it's interesting. Uh, I always remember a quote from a young man who was with the Regiment de la Chaudière. He went in in front of Bernier-sur-Mer with that regiment, and he was a young private. And he's going in with a more seasoned sergeant, and the sergeant gets them through this horrific battle on the way into their first objectives, getting through the town. And this guy, Gautier, looks back on it, and, he, and, and in my interview with him, I said, what was it about that sergeant that got you through it? And he said, well, we had all the tools, we had all the capability, we had all the training, but Sergeant Dion had one thing the rest of us didn't have. And I said, what was that? He said, courage. Wow. <laughs> you know, I can't imagine, and we talked about this a little earlier, I can't imagine what it would have been like on those landing craft that were being attacked by, uh, by Germans, by the German forces as they were approaching the beach. And they had to lower the ramps or open the doors, grab the ladders, and run for it. Some of them made it. Many of them made it. Many didn't. It's no, it's no wonder they're called the greatest generation. Seriously. And it, I did a story in the Hamilton Spectator yesterday about a man who's still with us, Jim Jenkins, who went in with the 19th Field Artillery. 
and he said that they had to, it took two attempts to get to their objective on the beach, but they finally did by literally using uh, uh, barges and and uh, settling tanks to right. destroy the ramp so that they could actually get off the landing craft with their gear and get onto the beach and give the infantry their support. That's how persistent these young guys were. They were so well-trained and yeah. they were so driven. Leonard David is the author of Moonrush, The New Space Race. He's co-author with Apollo 11's Buzz Aldrin of Mission to Mars, My Vision for Space Exploration. He's the first recipient of the American Astronomical Society's Ordway Award for Sustained Excellence in Spaceflight History. And Mr. David joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. David, thank you very much for the time. Leonard, thank you for the time. You're a space exploration writer and expert, and you served in the mid-1980s as director of research for the National Commission of Space, a U.S. Congress White House study that appraised the next 50 to 100 years of space exploration. So where do UFOs and UAPs fit into the big picture? Do we have any idea of what's coming our way in the next days, weeks from the U.S. government? Thank you for having me, and I wish I knew. <laughs> this is going to be a real kind of a placeholder in my mind of public thinking about uh, extraterrestrial visitations, uh, and it's mixed up with something else that I can't quite understand myself. I just finished uh, for Scientific American a kind of an overview. I talked to a lot of people about what this report could, couldn't say, might say, won't even go near. Uh, and I tell you, it's a toss-up. Uh, it's exciting times in that uh, perspective. Uh, we're at some kind of very interesting inflection point um, with understanding uh, this UAP thing. Uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon, and then UFOs. They may not be linked. They may mm -hmm. be two kind of separate uh, activities that we're going to uh, have to uh, deal with. So we have millions and, uh, and millions of people who have seen the video of the U.S. fighter plane uh, right. cameras on these really fast-moving uh, tic-tac shapes, and now there's yeah. the triangle, uh, the pyramid shape, thing, whatever it is, that changes direction uh, on a dime and travels at a massively uh, speeds that we can't even think of. And we have Barack Obama last month saying what is true, and I'm actually being serious here, is that there are, there's footage and records of objects in the sky that we don't know exactly what they are. He went on to say we can't explain how they moved their trajectory. They did not have an easily explainable pattern. And so, you know, I think that people still take seriously trying to investigate and figure out what that is. Just trying to put those words together, Barack Obama has no idea what he's talking about. None of us do. Um, yeah, that's the fun part. Well, I think it, that's what's, you know, <laughs> there's so much fun in this, in the same uh, thinking about scientific inquiry, exploration, discovery. Yeah. You know, even get, you know, peeling back the onion about unknown. So are we, uh, uh, Leonard, are we, is there any reason to do what people are doing everywhere? And that is thinking of being told, yes, there's alien life. And yes, we've been communicating with this alien life. And here's the proof. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of my problems, I think, as a reporter, I grew up in San Diego, 
California. I'm I'm 70-something. I'm talking back in the 50s. Uh, In San Diego, I'm listening to a guy named George Adamski coming down from Palomar Mountain saying he just got back from Venus. Um, You know, you you have a lot of strangeness in this whole UFO community. Uh, There are shysters. There are people that are... uh, uh, you know, entrepreneurs making money off uh, people's interest in UFOs. So that that hazes my thinking a lot um, about uh, the UFO situation. However, at the same time, look at what's happened in the last few decades with our ability to look at exoplanets, uh, to understand that we're not only are we're not alone, I think, in my mind, but we're trying to figure out how crowded is it. How many planets have been found that we knew nothing about? You know, in my lifetime, I lost Pluto as a planet, and we gained thousands of other worlds uh, that, uh, you know, you wonder is habitability rampant out there. Would it and be, so, is it, yeah. would it absolutely stagger you we have about 30 seconds. Would it absolutely stagger you if that report that's going to be released by the U.S. government would confirm that there are UFOs, that there are UAPs, and that there is alien life? Uh, it would be staggering to me. I don't think that's where it's going to go. I think what's going to come out of this is we're going to have a much more uh, rigorous uh, uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of a controversy that will have hearings, on, on Capitol Hill, we'll be back to some measures that we'll have to take mm-hmm. to really dive into what this report really says and okay. what it doesn't say. What it doesn't say, there's an annex to this that's going to be classified, and that is probably where we're going to find uh, somehow a lot of mystery. And uh, look, this could be something. I don't want to dwell on this, but I. I, yeah, are and I only have a few. I only have a few seconds. Will you? When this comes out, will you come back and we can talk about it? Yes, uh, you can. You know, I'm ready. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.